journey. Let's take a moment to pray together um, before entering into God's Word together. God, thanks for this amazing passage of Scripture, for the just amazing theology that uh, we we have presented to us uh, in Ephesians, and uh, specifically this this first ten. Um, God, we want to recognize theology isn't just something we read on a page, though, that it's something that happens in our hearts as we reflect on who you are and how you've made us and what it looks like to be uh, people in this world that's so fallen and broken, and yet people that uh, live with you and in you and have the, your power coursing through our lives to change things around us, our lives, but also broken relationships, broken systems. Um, so God, we pray to that end that as we reflect on this word, you'd be doing a work in our hearts and in our community um, that would then spill out into the city we live in and the workplaces as well and our families and our marriages and our friendships. Thank you that your spirit is at work this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so this series, I was joking about that little uh, doodle on the front. It's, uh, we're looking at this series through the lens of identity. And so w- what we're doing is uh, over the next six or s- whatever weeks, we're going to discover that Ephesians, though it's a letter to the church and Paul's writing a specific church in his time, is really a framework for how we might understand ourselves as followers of Christ, how to participate in his ongoing transformation in the world. So it's really about identity formation. So I think it's really applicable to where we're at here today in 2018. And um, today we're going to look at our, our identity in this passage on what it means to be saved, okay? So there's that, by grace you've been saved, not through works. It's a gift of God. We're going to look at that idea. And uh, notice that it comes up a couple times in this short passage. And it's a phrase that's become so common in core to kind of Protestant evangelical Christianity that it's become cliche. Like, I don't know how much you've actually thought about I'm saved by grace, you know, like, but that's just a thing. It's like the watchword of evangelicalism. And yet we have, I don't know about you, but have really no concept of the, the magnitude of that statement. And so I want to unpack it with you. Uh, don't know if you remember this book by Kathleen Norris uh, years ago called Amazing Grace. And it's like a little dictionary of um, faith words. Like there's an entry here on grace and there's church and there's mission and stuff. And she has one on salvation. And I just wanted to read you this. Yeah, I'll just tell you a story. She, it was Sunday morning. And with people driving to church, um, they, traffic on our normally quiet street, they live in, in North Dakota, had picked up a little bit. I sat in my kitchen. My husband was still asleep and listened to our friend's story. David, who's her husband, had brought him home after locking up the bar the night before. Her husband used to work in a bar. As this man was in no condition to drive. And he'd spent the night sleeping on our couch. And now I was making breakfast for both of us. And he was in a talkative mood. He'd been raised in western North Dakota, not far from our town, and when we first met, uh, he was, like many young men, working various jobs in the oil fields. The boom was on in the late 1970s and 80s, and he was fearless, one of those death-defying people who actually liked the roughest, meanest, most dangerous jobs. He made a bunch of money and had drunk through much of it. Most days, to get through the shift on the oil rig, he would take a little speed, the cheap stuff known as crank. Much of it was homemade. Now he was in between jobs, visiting his parents and kid brothers. He thought of working on the pipeline in Alaska. He he knew some people up there that were making big money. He'd met some drug dealers in Wyoming, though, and dreamed up a scheme with them to make even more money. So he'd come back home, and he told me because it had gotten too rough for him. 
Our friend uh, was full of stories. One of his new acquaintances, a man from Montana, had drifted south, and he heard that his corpse had been found hogtied, riddled with bullet holes, and drifting along the Gulf of Mexico. He said, I guess he got involved in something bigger than he knew, in his classic West River understatement. He said that he thought things were working out fine. Now, he and the guy he was in business with were making good contacts, setting up a network, and he felt lucky to have fallen in with someone with so much experience. Remember that they're dealing drugs, okay? Then, one day, as they were driving on the outskirts of this small city that was the base of their operations, his friend veered suddenly onto the shoulder of the road. He'd seen an acquaintance driving past in the other direction and was debating whether to turn the car around and follow him. He said, I need to kill him. Matter of factly, reaching for a gun that was stashed under, unbeknownst to this friend under the front seat. I need to kill him, but he's with someone. I don't know who. Ah, oh, it'll have to wait. <laughs> it was right then that this friend decided to get out of the car and said, this was over my head. And that, Kathleen Norris says, is salvation. At least the beginning of it. The Hebrew word for salvation, she says, means literally to make wide or to make sufficient. And our friend had recognized that the road he had taken was not wide enough to sustain his life. It was only sufficient as a way of leading to death. The Hebrew words usually come from military context and refer to victory over evil or rescue from danger. And the Gospels, it's most often physical healing that people seek from Jesus. Relief from blindness, paralysis, leprosy. When he says that their faith has saved them, it's the Greek word for made you well that's employed there. It seems right to me that in many instances, in both Hebrew as well as in the Greek, salvation is described in physical terms, in terms of the here and the now, because I believe this is how most of us first experience it. Only later do we get the more spiritual implications of salvation. Then she finishes her story saying, having turned suddenly from the path he was on, our friend seemed a bit lost, but glad to have been able to share something that was wrong with his life and begin to walk away from it. He tasted a kind of freedom and wasn't sure what to do about it except to tell somebody. He felt good but uneasy. I think unsure of what to do next. I could not have said this to him at that moment, but I could now. Accepting salvation is never easy. It's never easy. I don't know how much you've thought about what it means to be saved by grace. Um, That's an example, I think, of somebody who is quite literally saved by grace. What does it mean to you to be saved? Like you're sitting here today, you either grew up in the church, you're new to the church, you're thinking about Christianity. What would it mean to you uh, in the circumstances of your life today, as good as they are, as broken as they are, the world we're in, as broken as it is, uh, to be saved like that man was from uh, a road that's going down just a dead end? Um, Whatever it means, it should mean something like that. And to realize whether quite dramatically like he did or maybe a little more inconspicuous like most of us, that we're in over our heads, we're going down the wrong path, and the road we're on is insufficient to sustain our lives. And thus we need to kind of step out. The word repent literally means to uh, change directions. So you're walking down a path, and this is repentance. <laughs> Turn around, go another way. And that's what this guy did. I mean, he didn't literally get out of the car in that moment, but maybe he did, just jumped out of a moving car. And he repented. And that's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 2. By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift of God, not through works. Uh, so it takes faith to do that, to get out of a car that's going in the wrong direction. It's, it takes faith to step out and be saved. And I'm guessing many of us haven't thought of salvation in this, this way, um, like her friend did. 
And so I, it's, it's a powerful declaration. It's earthy. Salvation is earthy. It's gritty. It's everyday, an everyday reality that all of us, I, I would hope, it just courses through us like electricity. That it just electrifies our lives, our stories, and fills us with a sense of gladness. You know, like we are free from whatever uh, is keeping us back and, and maybe makes us uneasy. <laughs> wow, I don't know what to do next, as this man said. I don't, and I don't know about you, that doesn't really describe my salvation story. <laughs> like, about your experience, I want it to, but, but my salvation story is generally comfortable. My faith is generally linear, like my sermons are, three points, beginning, middle, end. And today, I think what Paul's saying when he says, you've been saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, not by works, there is no beginning, middle, end to that. It's not linear, it's not safe, it's not comfortable, it is radical, it is extravagant, uh, it is mind-blowing when you think about it. And so today I want to invite us to explore, through a three-point sermon, um, a linear one, a salvation in more depth, just because I think that will help us organize our thoughts. And, uh, and so to that end, notice the passage, if you have it open, it breaks easily into these three parts. Verses 1 to 3, talk about the life we're saved from. And then verses 8 to 10, actually it's not linear, uh, tell us about the life we're saved for. And then in the middle there, in verses 4 to 7, tell us how we get from uh, there to here. You might just say from here to there. So what we're saved through. So we're going to talk about that, what we're saved from, what we're saved to, and then what we're saved through. Okay, that's your outline for the morning. And so first, what we're saved from. The first three verses here give you this comprehensive picture of who we are as human beings outside of God. Okay? It says, very famously, that we are dead, or we were dead, in our transgressions and sins. So I want to pause there. What does that mean, to be dead in sin? And I think it means, first of all, to be enslaved, if you understand the idea of sin. Notice um, in the verses, right there, verses 2 and 3, the word followed shows up twice. Verse 2, you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And then verse 3, we follow the desires and cravings of the sinful nature. The word follow in English doesn't hot. It's weak. Like I follow, I don't know, my friends. I follow the car in front of me. It's just kind of a weak word. And it doesn't get across the strength of the Greek word, which means literally be mastered by or to be controlled by someone or something. So if you're dead in sin, the reason it says you're dead in your sin and transgressions is you're basically as helpless as a dead body. You, uh, you have no power over your own life. You can't exert yourself. You're disempowered. Instead, you're being controlled and mastered by something else. You're enslaved. That's kind of what, that's what that means. Now you might be asking, what? What am I enslaved to? What am I enslaved by? And there are actually three agents at work here that Paul articulates. The first is we're enslaved to the ways of the world, literally like the spirit of the age. And then it says we're also enslaved to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Uh, that's the devil, okay? Now, I know if we had time, it would be so interesting, right, to like talk about what the Bible means by the spirit of the age and what it means to be worldly and what it means to be in bondage to the devil. I, I think that would be interesting, uh, but we're not going to do that today. So there you go. Because the key idea, the third agent, I think, is actually where I think we want to park this morning, which is really, it's right here in the room. It says the third agent, we're enslaved because we're gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. So the context here, the, the flesh is the Greek word sarks. It usually talks about the physical body. Here, though, Paul is not talking about your physical flesh. He's talking about your self-centered human nature, OK? 
okay? If you read the whole passage. So this is the thing inside of you that drives you, um, that masters you and controls you. Okay, remember, this idea of following is about being mastered and controlled. So if you said, hey, I'd love to hear more about the devil, Jack, <laughs> let me just ask you a question. What made the devil the devil? What made the devil the devil? Remember, he was a fallen angel created by God. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us, kind of offhandedly, if you read that, what made the devil the devil? Uh, he says, don't become conceited. And then he says, for then you will fall under the same judgment as the devil. So what made the devil the devil? Conceit, self-centeredness, the flesh, the sarks made the devil the devil, his inward nature. Therefore, as interesting as it would be to talk about the devil as a character, as opposed to ourselves as whoever we are, you people, we're basically the, we're the same thing as the devil. I know, I'm not going to call you little devils, but sorry, welcome to church. According to the Bible, we are. The reason we're dead in sin, the reason we're slaves to the sin of the world, the, the devil that initiated sin, is our human hearts are profoundly self-centered. Profoundly. So the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther once put it this way, that in the most profound and brief definition of sin that I've ever read, he said the human heart is in curvitus in se, which is Latin for curved in on itself. So we're innately self-centered. We are looking inside of ourselves. We're absorbed. Here's a little more uh, pedestrian example of what he meant there. Maybe you've heard this if you're a parent. The Tyler's Creed. Have you heard this? As you can find it online. I don't even know who wrote it, but it's very, basically the same thing as in curvitus in se. Here's how it goes. Tyler's Creed. If I want it, it's mine. If I give it to you and I change my mind later, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If we're building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what. How many of you have three-year-olds, four-year-olds? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And though this creed is just a shameless bit of pre-K humor for all the parents in the room, it's so true. Like, it's this poignant statement about what it means to be human apart from God. We are dead in our sin. We are innately self-centered. We're so curved in, self-centered, self-absorbed, wickedly, curvedly, unthinkingly. We use all things, even God sometimes. We use things, people, work, relationships, God sometimes for ourselves just to get ahead. According to the Bible, uh, we are, think of it like this, we're like a little computer. Like the very center of our hearts, a little computer that never stops, never turned off, never cycled, just on 24-7, 365, just churning, analyzing, viewing everything, seeing everything, seeing every person, every object, every experience, every event, with this one question, what's in it for me? Everything's being analyzed. How can it benefit me, my happiness, my glory, my power, my reputation, my comfort, my control, maybe even church sometimes? Like, you're analyzing this in terms of how does this help me? How how does this benefit my interests? Do I fit in? How does it make me happy? Does it advance my goals? Does it fulfill me? I mean, I don't know if you ever said that. Here, I do, as an employee of this church. And, and look at it like that. That's self-centeredness. That is not, that is, that's what Paul is talking about. And it can make, actually, it can make you a cruel person. You look at any of the tyrants of the ages, the, the sort of Hitlers of the world, and they really, at the, they're just at the root level self-centered, egotistical, maniacal, self-absorbed, insecure. But even the, the most moral people I've heard said, and I've experienced this myself, are also very self-centered. Desperately need to feel good about ourselves. 
and so we, we do good things because we want to feel better. You know, whether that's serving the poor, being a good child to our parents, being good parents to our children, being a good friend, helping people, coming to church, obeying the Ten Commandments, whatever it is. If we're honest with ourselves, vulnerable with each other, if we were just to take a vulnerable moment with each other, at a level we do these things because, as Martin Luther said, our hearts curve inward, and we, we need affirmation. We need confirmation that we're okay. And, uh, man, that, when it's about you, working hard, when it's, that is a miserable life. <laughs> the bottom line here is that there's nothing more miserable than self-centeredness. And that's why Paul says you're saved from it. Because there's, it's the most enslaving, it's actually a little version of hell. Uh, I heard a pastor once say that self-centeredness is hell begun in you because it will eventually take you to hell. You'll get to join the devil there. I mean, that's a bold statement. Think about it. What made the devil the devil? Self-centeredness. Uh, do you remember the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? He talks about this in there. This is this little book he wrote during World War II. It's sort of a sketch about this fictional character named Screwtape in conversation with, he's a demon, with his like under-demon or his little protege, his name's Wormwood. And they're having this fictional conversation about how to tempt humans and how to do it well. And he, uh, Screwtape tells Wormwood in one place, he says, don't, don't commit these grand, don't try and get the, this person to commit these grand and grandiose acts of sin, like, you know, addiction and adultery and all these things. Instead, uh, just get him to think about himself. And he calls this the, the subtler misdirection that will lead him away from heaven subtly toward hell. This, this gaze away from God toward himself, away from others toward himself. You do that, you've got him. You've got her. That's, it's just a little hell begun in you. Uh, and it's that self-absorption, always thinking about ourselves, how we look at situations, how they reflect on us, that beginning in us that God, like I said, wants to save us from, okay? And so that's the first point here. I want to press it because if I left us there, you're going to leave, like, really discouraged, right? Oh, gosh, I feel terrible about myself. And I think Paul's trying to start us there, but obviously we're saved to something. So from this self-centeredness, and then in verses 8 to 10, we'll talk about this briefly, uh, he says, doesn't give us a lot of details, but he suggests to us the life that God wants to save us to or into, uh, the heart that God wants to replace this self-centered heart with, okay? And here it is. There's a couple of fascinating terms here in those verses. One of them, you think you know what it means, but you don't have a clue. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, okay? So this is saying you're not saved by how good you are or how moral you are. You're saved because, not because of your pedigree, not because you were born a Christian or whatever, uh, you're saved nothing by nothing you did. You're saved by grace through faith. And so I want to break that down. Uh, what does it mean to be saved by grace? Start there. You hear pastors like me waxing eloquent about grace all the time, and you might be a little tired of it. Uh, but, so what does it mean to be saved by it, right? If grace is a gift? Well, I was thinking this week about this in, uh, in the Bible, in the terms of the Bible, I thought of the story of Jacob. Remember Jacob uh, and his brother Esau? He has this, it's called a theophany in Genesis 28, where he actually has this, this dream. Remember the stairway and the angels coming up and down and all that stuff? And uh, that, to me, strikes me as an appealing kind of tale of salvation by grace. So here's a man 
who has deceived his brother or his father and cheated his brother out of his inheritance, if you remember that story. And, but God's response to Jacob, if you know this story, he's vulnerable. He's at, so he's on the run from Esau, and he's sleeping in the desert. He's alone. Uh, is, he's, is not to strike Jacob down. He doesn't, God doesn't do that. It's instead to give Jacob a blessing. Genesis 28, God says, I'm your, it meets him in the desert in this dream. I'm your God, the God of Abraham, your father, Isaac. I'm giving you the ground on which you're sleeping, and your descend- I'm giving it to your descendants, and your descendants will be as the same blessing to Abraham as the dust of the earth. They will stretch from east to west, north to south. All the families of the earth will bless themselves because of you, the deceiver. And then he says, and I will stay with you, Jacob, no matter what. No matter what you do or fail to do, I'll protect you. I'll bring you back to this very ground. Though you run, I will follow you. I will stick with you until I've done everything I promised to do. Period. And then Jacob wakes up. And he says, what does he say? Surely God's in this place. Because his heart's expecting to be annihilated at this point, And yet he's blessed. And, and that exclamation, surely God's in this place, I didn't even know it, reminds me that God can and does choose to dwell with us anywhere and everywhere we go, no matter what we do or fail to do. Jacob worships pretty badly when he wakes up. He takes a rock, remember this, that he, I think he kept close because he was afraid that he was going to get attacked in the middle of the night by Esau. And instead, I mean, think of this. I've got a weapon, talk about swords to plowshares, and he turns it into this little altar to God because he wants everybody to know that he'd been saved by grace through faith. And, and then he tries to bargain with God. God doesn't care. He's like, Jacob, I'm just going to keep blessing you. You bargain, I'm going to bless. It's good. I'm going to be with you despite your self-obsessed insecurity. Though you know you're saved by grace and you continue to try and bargain, I'm going to bless. That's who I am. And uh, God's not capricious. He's faithful. He's not tight-fisted with his grace. He's generous to us. That's what it means to be saved by grace. Uh, Okay? So that's God's response to us nearly every time. St. Teresa of um, Avila or whatever her name, she says that we need to learn to see that everything is grace. I know, I just totally threw St. Teresa under the bus. Sorry. St. Teresa, just stay with the first name. Everything is grace. (laughs) So if you let Jacob's story speak to you, you need to begin to see that everything you have is a gift. Your job, your marriage, your family, these relationships, this church, and even when they're not working out the way you want them to, even though they're not meeting your expectations, even though, man, this feels like it's going the wrong direction right now, saved by grace through faith, everything is grace. God's in this. God's always going to bless me and bless us. He's, that's what he does. Uh, I don't deserve it, but it is. The breath you took, grace. The people you're surrounded by this morning, grace. Your ability to work, your health, whether it's failing or not, grace. A gift that you have to share with the world, a grace. Uh, even more, and here's what I move forward a little bit, faith grace. Did you notice that? It says you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works. So faith, we think it's something we've attained or arrived at. Like, I prayed to receive Christ. I was brought up in the church. I have faith, right? I'm a faithful person. It's my thing. And uh, Ephesians 2 says, no, that's not how faith 
works. It doesn't get going that way. We don't arrive at faith that way. Faith is a gift, just like grace. Uh, It's something God gives us, whether you're a wicked sinner, lifelong Christian. The faith you're experiencing today, in degrees or in massive amounts, every degree of it, every ounce, every moment, is a gift from God. And thus, what it means to live by faith to live in the, is to live in the awareness that, that our response to God, if faith is a response to God, is a gift. Your ability to sort of go, God, you're in this place, like Jacob did, is a gift. To be, just to see God at work and not do things in your own strength is a gift from God. And how do you receive gifts? How do you receive gifts when you receive them? What's the right way to receive gifts, I should say? Because <laughs> our kids sometimes don't do this. Thank you. So I don't know about you, but like you sit down, I have my cup of coffee, my two slices of bacon, my two eggs, and my Bible. That's my quiet time. I don't know. Sometimes I'm not actually saying to God, thank you for this time and this word you've opened to me and the faith you've implanted in my heart. Sometimes I'm just kind of like, bitter about what happened yesterday still, or anxious about what's happening today, or bummed that the bacon is burnt, you know, or whatever. And I'm not focused on this idea that God's given me a moment of faith as a gift, and all he's asked me to do is say, thank you for this moment. Uh, And so my question is, are you living by faith? Are you living in response like that? Are you saying thank you to God? That's the reason. And do you know the other reason God gives us faith? I mean, the reason he wants us to have faith is to be able to be gracious or uh, grateful. The other reason that Paul articulate, articulates here is to bring us to a place of rest. So there's gratitude, but also rest. Um, here's what I mean by this. Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that, here it is, no one can boast. Boasting is the source, cause, and basis of our restlessness. And Paul says the reason why you can't experience a life of faith, a life of gratitude and rest, is that you don't boast anymore, which is really strange if you think about it. Because we think of the word boast, we think of like talking big, right? This humble brag. But boasting in their time amongst the ancients was so different. If you read like ancient legends or accounts of great battles, you read some battles in the Old Testament, what you find is that before the warriors would usually go out into the battlefield, the field of battle, here's what they would do. Um, you have this with Elijah, you know, in, in, uh, Z, or in 1 Kings like 18. It's incredibly frightening. He's going to face the prophets of Baal, and, and they're gonna, uh, many warriors have to go into these circumstances where they're overmatched, underprepared, and they know they're not going to come back. So here's what they do. The night before, they're going to boast. They say things like, we have iron chariots. They don't. Uh, we have 10,000, they have five. Uh, we have God. They're, they're, they're godless, you know. And they're just like, we have the greatest warrior king, like the David the Goliath thing. We, he has the longest sword, longest spear. They're boasting. So what is boasting? It's more than just ancient Near Eastern trash talk. It's, it's giving yourself a sense of confidence that you have enough. Um, we can do it. You know, I've got it. And so the question is, why would Paul say that saved by grace through faith is a gift from God so that there's no more boasting? Uh, why wouldn't it, wouldn't it be good to be able to boast? Like you'd have more confidence to face difficult circumstances if you just kind of worked yourself up, like give ourselves a 
pep talk every morning. Uh, so what's he talking about? We think of those soldiers, what they're actually doing, and they say, look at our chariots, look at our numbers, look at our warriors. They're not looking at those things, if you think about it. They're looking to them or looking into them. They're saying these are not statements of fact. These are statements of value and trust. We have confidence in these things that they are going to deliver us, right? And so it's not just the soldiers who do this when they head into battle. Everybody boasts, like Jeremiah 9. uh, The prophet says, let not the wise man boast in his glory, the rich man in his riches. Uh, Any of those things. I mean, wise people and less wise people do this, men and women, rich and poor, young and old, you could say single and married. I mean, life outside Jesus means that every single one of us will tend to look around for something to boast in, be proud of, give ourselves to, seek confidence in. We're trying to find that um, value, worth, and strength in it. We're looking to something. And God wants to free us from that because it's exhausting, just like I said self-centeredness is. And he wants to free us for rest. So the word faith here, it's not just intellectual assent, like you're not believing in things. It's to put trust in a thing. So God says, I want, to put, I want to make you a person of rest in me. You're saved by grace through faith. I want you to be at deep rest in me. Not things around you, not circumstances, not other people, not your work, not your family, just in me. Are, so are you at rest in God is the, the bottom line question today. And I'm guessing most of us, if we thought about it, would say, no, I'm uncertain about my future. I'm anxious. I'm exhausted right now. Parenting, work, politics, everything is just tearing me apart. I'm not at ease. And the, God, the, the, the life that God wants to save us to is a, is a life of freedom from those things, from the exhaustion of those things, a life of refreshment and restoration. And really the only way that we're set free from a life of boasting is to, is to put our rest, our trust, our faith in God. Get off the treadmill of sort of running, like, I got I to gotta do this. I got to prove myself. I got to look to my significance from other people and say, God, it's really you. I'm not boasting in those things anymore, seeking my confidence from them. So how do we get there is kind of the last question. That's what we're saved to is a life of rest. We're saved from a life of self-absorption. So how do we get there? What we're saved through? Real quick here from the old life to the new life. And this is in the middle, verses 4 to 7. It says that God raised us up with Jesus, seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in the kindness, uh, expressed to us in Christ, in the, expressed to us, sorry, in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ. There's the image of rest in the heavenly realms. So here's the thing. We all, or I shouldn't say we all, but most of us probably believe that Jesus is sitting, he's raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, right? That's kind of part of our confession of faith. We believe that, we know that. Ancient people understood that metaphor perfectly, though. We don't understand when we say that in the creed, you know, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, We don't have a clue what we're saying. Here's what it's saying. In the ancient Near East, going back to this military metaphor, if you're a conquering hero and uh, you conquered on a battlefield, you achieved victory for your people, you come back to, let's just call it a castle. You come back to your kingdom and uh, the capital city, 
you're given the greatest place of honor possible. You're the conquering warrior, right? You've gone away, you've achieved victory, you come back. And where is that place of victory, that place of honor? In the ancient Near East, it's the right hand of the king. He literally, if there's a throne here, my right hand, place of honor, that's the most, that's why James and John are arguing with each other, or the disciples are arguing when Jesus is at the Last Supper, who's going to sit on his right and his left? Who's the most important person? Is it me or is it you? Because I want to sit by Jesus' right hand. And that means I've, I've conquered, but also like I'm important to Jesus. So the right hand is the place of honor. So it made sense to the ancient people when they saw that Jesus was, he's accomplished all these things, defeated the devil, defeated death, defeated sin, raised from the dead, that he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's why we confess that. It means that Jesus is the most honorable place in the universe. Okay, so push it further. It says here, not only is Jesus seated there, but you are, and you are. We are seated with Jesus beside the Father. Wow. (laughs) How can that be? Because you're sitting here this morning. How can you be seated there? (laughs) Like, that doesn't make sense. How are we seated with Jesus in honor? Well, there's a little hint here in verse 7, and this is where I want to finish. It says that all of this was because of God's kindness to us. We're seated with Jesus in that place of incredible honor because of God's kindness to us. So the word kindness, just like following and all these other words, is so weak in English. <laughs> like we teach our kids to be kind to their friends, like don't say bad things and don't hit them, don't take things. Like. And that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word uh, means this. It's, it means costly action. So it means not just saying, I love you, or I'm going to be nice to you, but it's like putting your money where your mouth is, uh, like acting on your intention, acting in response to the way you feel, doing something very costly on behalf of somebody else. So we know, based on Philippians 2, that's what Jesus did. He, being in God's very nature, didn't consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but in, I'd say in kindness— if you use that Greek idea, he relinquished that, made himself nothing, took the nature of a slave, humbled himself, became obedient to death, died on a cross. He's expressing infinite kindness, costly action right there, saying, I don't, yeah, I'm God's son, seated, I could be seated here forever at God's right hand, but I'm going to give that up for you. So you could be seated here with me, because I don't want to be alone here. That's the only reason we sit here today, is that Jesus was kind toward us, costly action on our behalf. And that's why Paul says we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. He did that on our behalf. He did it instead of us, really. So how did Jesus save you? How does he save me in the world? He, how does he save us from our incurved in hearts? <laughs> he did it by doing the most radically unself-centered thing anyone has ever done. I mean, think of it. You have security, you have significance, you have honor. And you say, you know what? I'm going to move out. I'm going to go down. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to die a shameful death. Um, I was, I'm equal to the Father, but he says, not my life for me, as that toddler creed goes, my life for you. My life for you. My life for you. My heart for you. My time for you. My, my healing for you. That's, that's the reason we follow Christ, because he is demonstrating and discharging on the cross this my life for your sort of 
uh, way of living. The healing, wholeness, and freedom, the grace that is available to us is because Jesus says, it's yours. I want to give it to you. It's available. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what gets us from kind of this curved-in way that we kind of just created as to this way of being restful, is looking at Jesus, um, seeing him lay his life down, and basically spreading life to the world. If you look at Jesus that way, I mean, look at his selflessness. Just like you have your coffee and your bacon and your eggs or however you do it, and you have a moment of faith, it's a gift. And you say, God, thank you for being selfless on my behalf. If you just do that for a moment this week, or five moments, or five minutes, or 20, or whatever you do, it will blast you out of your self-centeredness. It will grip your life. It will free you for a life of rest that I know all of us, I know so many of you are just hungry for. I want to be at rest right now. And God will free you for that by just looking at his son and seeing how selfless he was for you. He has the power to do that. That's what Paul's saying. It will empower you to be a source of grace too and spread that grace. Um, so my friends, here's my prayer for us. Because we've received the life of God, that's what Colossians says, we have this life to spread. And so I want to invite us in the coming days to take moments. Maybe it's five minutes this week for you, and that's your start, to receive, receive the grace of God, receive the rest of God. Let his life fill your life. And I, pro- I promise you, I promise you, his life will begin to spread through you. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And we're going to respond by just uh, singing to God. Um, And the reason we do this, again, I said theology is just meditating on what God's revealed to us. We do this then to to ask God to begin that work. Worship you, God. Thank you for what you've done. And would you continue to do the work in us to be the people you've called us to be? So this is why we're singing. But let me pray for us. God, though we're not going to sing this song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me, once was lost, now we're found, blind but now we see. God, that's a song that has like this statement from Ephesians to become so cliche to us. And yet we want it to be not only true, um, we want it to, to provoke us, to wake us, God, um, like a kiss from a a dear friend or, or our spouse or our children wakes us up. Would you wake us up with your grace this morning, God? And God, we thank you that your grace is enough. Everything's grace, but your grace is enough. Everything we need to live changed lives. So we pray this morning, God, um, that you would, you would take the gospel of grace presented to us here And just work it into our our hearts a little bit deeper in these moments ahead. Because we've been here, we're worshiping, we're fellowshipping, we've listened. Would you shape us to be your people more fully? And then, God, would you equip us to be agents of grace as we step out these doors into difficult situations, marriages or families or neighborhoods or workplaces. God, equip us to be agents of grace, uh, people filled with life, spreading life helping to free others for rest, God. That's what we want. So that's what we pray for.
in Christ's name.